0: Simple Beep episode 87 Desktop Publishing. Hello and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormony and I'm Brian Satorius. And on this episode, we are tackling a big topic that was almost synonymous with the Mac in a certain phase of its existence, which is the ability to do publishing tasks which then became known as desktop publishing, and then stopped being known as desktop publishing. So we've got a lot to get into on that hardware, software, some of our own personal projects. But before we do, of course, we have a few pieces of follow-up.
1: First, uh, to address our previous episode about General Magic, at MacFixer on Twitter uh, sent us a thread of tweets about what happened to the General Magic technology After kind of the events of the movie, which is uh, mostly what we talked about. And um, I'll reference this first tweet in the thread. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Of course, General Magic spun off their devices to a company called Icarus, and they created one last device called the Data Rover 840. Reviews were very positive, calling it the device they should have shipped. And there is a link to the Engadget product page for this device, which at least at the time that I'm viewing it, seems to have one user review, but it is very positive. It's 100 out of 100, and it's very long and very effusive.
0: That is such a weird resource. They like tried to crowdsource those things, and it's just, there are some useful pages there and a whole lot of weirdness.
1: So yeah, there some, there's some some good links in the Twitter thread, and one additional link that we'll put in the show notes is that the actual PDF of the user manual for this device is preserved online, which includes a whole bunch of excellent screenshots of the Magic Cap OS and uh, some of the built-in applications that came with it. Um, So if you're craving more general Magic content, be sure to check those out.
0: Yeah, I'm looking at this manual right now. It's got some of those like weird missing font PDF kind of problems, but all of the screenshots are pristine and high quality. And I'm just (laughs) I'm just paging through it. And there are maybe five times as many good screenshots in here as I saw in all the rest of our Magic Cap research for the episode. So if you saw a couple or some blurry screenshots of the Magic Cap OS from last time and want more, definitely go download this PDF. Next up is going back a ways. Actually, I think, Brian, you inserted here in our outline which episode this goes to. Uh, it's back to episode 74, but you don't really need that context. The fact is that it's a beloved Mac community institution. As the Apple turns, we got this piece of feedback from at unindulging on Twitter, Jay Gillespie, who told us that as the Apple turns is, quote, back in reruns, So what this means is the uh, person or people who were originally in charge of As the Apple Turns still have all of the source material, which is fantastic, and have decided to revive it in what they're calling reruns, which is totally on point for their site design and branding. So they're taking posts from, I'm looking at this now, I guess it's exactly 20 years ago. Oh my gosh. Right? Like it's a, it's an exact rewind. Cause I'm looking at this now we're recording on the 11th and their most recent post is from, uh, December 9th, 1999. So they're rolling them out in this time capsule fashion. They've done a little bit of a redesign on the site. It's kind of this beautiful Franken interface, uh, because it looks like it's gone, uh, kind of OS 10, but kind of not, although I guess this is actually, uh, completely coherent because it's got, uh, your like early aqua windows, but then stickies. And as we talked about a couple episodes ago, like stickies still looks like system seven stickies and still ships in Catalina, as far as I'm know, at least in Mojave. Um, so yeah, so it's gotten a little bit of a OS 10 makeover. And it's just like it's just chugging along, and it's still got that thing where you know it looks like a desktop. You can resize the window. It's got a tiled background. All the windows move around. Just delightful. So glad that that site is functioning rather than just being via the Internet Archive. Uh, I hope that other sites of the same sort will, are are able to do this, uh, especially when they are personal projects and people have still hung on to them for this long.
1: And finally, going.
0: Even farther back in our
1: show history, we did an episode on Apple's 40 in 40 uh, marketing video. It was our episode 36. How is that possibly 50 episodes ago? That does, that does not make sense. We've been doing this for a while. And just in an interesting little bit of follow-up to that video itself, Sam Henry Gold on Twitter, who I think is also running his own independent archive of Apple promotional video material and is like building, I think in in a Google drive or something, uh, released a, an early cut of what he said was the 40 years video. Um, obviously they ended up going with the 40 and 41 that we discussed, but if you watch this video in his tweet, you may think like, but I have seen this somewhere in an Apple event and it is the wonderful tools introductory video that i believe was this year 2019's wwdc introduction video so it's kind of cool to see that they had this idea you know uh, uh, many events in advance shelved it and brought it back for something else
0: yeah lots of the same animations obviously the wonderful tools got a couple of even newer products that in the in the time that elapsed that got folded into it and there are a couple that are in this Draft that didn't make it into the one from 2019. Uh, The version that we'll link to is just on Twitter for the moment. If you look in the thread, you'll see that I responded to him from our show account, asking, "Like, hey, is there a is there a better version of this?" Like, as soon as the wonderful tools video went up on YouTube, I proceeded immediately to YouTube DL to get a full res copy of that uh, for the cold storage. And he says that. Uh, eventually, as he puts together his archive, he will be willing to share the higher res version. So I think I'm still eagerly awaiting that.
1: He may be a good follow for anyone who uh, is genuinely interested in our show. You may want to follow Sam Henry Gold on Twitter.
0: So now let's get to our main topic for the episode, which, as I said at the top, is a big one. And it is the concept of desktop publishing. And I think we'll go a little bit into... The range of what that could mean. But I think at its its most basic form, it is the ability that personal computers gave us, microcomputers, but really personal computers, gave people to start producing extremely high-quality printed materials, initially more at a corporate scale, and then later on, I would say, more on an individual scale. And we're going to get into a lot of the hardware and software that enabled those things and how they have evolved, declined, survived. Uh, There are lots of threads running through this topic.
1: The rise of desktop publishing at a consumer level, or not at least gigantic corporation level, uh, was pretty much in tandem with the arrival of the Macintosh. And the Macintosh ecosystem got to own desktop publishing for a while. And it kind of... I think uh, laid the groundwork for one of the main volleys in the Mac versus PC wars is that PCs uh, grew to be like the Excel machines and boring data crunching. And it doesn't look as fun. And Macs are for the creative people. Uh, you can lay out really elaborate page work on a Mac and, and do kinds of uh, graphic design and do it in a way that uh, is, is all visual um, I think a, a big part of WWDC this year was Swift UI in which you can kind of declaratively lay out your apps in code the same way that you can do with like HTML and CSS for websites, as opposed to interface builder, which is uh, visually lay out the components of your apps. And I feel like for a while um, you, know, you go back to a printing press, I guess, but uh, you kind of lay out with blocks of text uh like let the text decide the content when you're doing that uh publishing and with the mac and some other technologies some hardware and some software uh you were able to do it visually and it enabled it to a lot more people
0: right a lot of the metaphors that are even still used in some of these applications are taken from the traditional printing press offset printing publishing world And I saw them even more so in some of these early software reviews and articles that I read doing research and that we'll link to in the show notes. A lot of old Macworld articles from the late 80s, those kinds of things where, uh, like, even if you use Adobe Illustrator today, there's, um, there's this thing that's called the pasteboard. Or maybe that's in InDesign. It's called the Artboard in Illustrator, right? But there's this thing called Pasteboard. Why is it, like, what is that? It has nothing to do with copying and pasting in the computer sense that we are now just totally used to. It was literally taking pieces of art and text and pasting them on a stiff board so that it could then be turned into the the offset plates for printing. Um, And there was one article that I read. It's like, oh, this is a lot like uh, if if you know how to do a regular paste up, which means actually physically taking those parts, that then this piece of software will be so natural to you. And there are a lot of people who are in the Apple community who are a little bit older than us, sort of half a generation older than us, I would say, especially the people who got their uh, first experience with early Macs at things like college newspapers where they were in this hybrid environment where there was to a certain extent still people literally getting out glue sticks or or the equivalent and pasting things up. And then there was a, a parallel team that was doing some of the production digitally, almost always on a Mac and with some of the tools that we're going to talk about.
1: And speaking of tools, there were three particular categories of tools all within the Mac ecosystem that enabled more or less the everyman to take on this new realm of desktop publishing. One, of course, is the actual Macintosh, whether it's the original Macintosh, the 512K, the Plus, these early machines with their graphical user interfaces were obviously a key tool. The second one is uh, the software that you would use on these machines to go about laying out your, uh, your text, your columns, and your images. And then the third is actually getting them into the real world onto paper and the laser writer, which was created and, and sold by Apple was probably the, the most responsible for small shops or even, you know, uh, wealthy ish homes, uh, to, to run, you know, a tiny printing press. And so there's a quote from the Wikipedia article for desktop publishing, which, you know, you can go and read at your own leisure, that says the PageMaker, LaserWriter, and Macintosh 512K system was a revolutionary combination at the time.
0: And one of the key reasons that the LaserWriter was so important was just because of its high quality output. And that meant that if you were doing an extreme... I mean, and you were also talking black and white, right? Yeah. (laughs) Obviously. Um, But that meant that if you were doing an extremely small batch, you know, maybe you were going to print, you know, 20 brochures or something and they could be in black and white, then off to the laser writer they go and they're done in a matter of minutes. Or if you were actually prepping a larger job that was still... Within the confines of say you know your eight and a half by eleven paper letter size paper or something that could be scaled up from that without losing too much quality, you would actually make your master you know sort of on that and then that goes off to the printing house and but you know exactly what it's going to look like, and you have full control over the design before it goes off to them, and it's not. You know, it's not fragile in the ways of those, uh, you know, sort of cut together or spliced together kind of, of mockups. You know, you send it off to a printing house and, uh, and, you know, a paragraph falls off. <laughs> yeah. The other huge advantage here, of course, was just the WYSIWYG editors that were available in software and the fact that you were able to see on your Macintosh's screen, even if it was black and white, remember you're working in black and white output, a reasonable facsimile, not 600 dpi, not even our 250 dpi retina screens for now, 72 dpi facsimile, and you could zoom in to see what you were going to be printing and have control over that. And if you were a type freak, that was the kind of thing that you were really concerned about, not just open up MacWrite and see what I get and hit print, and it looks better than anything that came off of a dot matrix printer. That's fine for the home use, but that's not going to cut it for laying out a magazine or a newspaper. But it enabled all of this fine control with a visual interface, not for the first time, obviously, but for the first time for a mass audience. And so this spawned a certain type of small industry of, in fact, training people how to use these WYSIWYG tools. So uh, from the Wikipedia article on desktop publishing, which is, of course, a high-level overview, a quote says, indeed, one popular desktop publishing book was entitled The Mac is Not a Typewriter. And this was the kind of transition that people were making from typing on typewriters to typing on personal computers. And what kind of differences do you get between them? One of the Core tenets of Mech is not a typewriter, is stop putting two spaces after periods because the software will take care of it for you. And like good typesetting software does, whether in actually really good typesetting software, it doesn't matter whether you have one space, two spaces, 500 spaces after, it's going to know, well, this is the end of a sentence and I'm going to space it in an eye pleasing way. Uh, but those were the kinds of things that people were adapting to in this transition to desktop publishing.
1: And so I, I mentioned this triangle of uh, the computer, the printer and the the software as in the application, but there's another major thing that that enabled, you know, all of these three key pieces to talk to each other and ensure that what you think you're doing in the software looks the same on the computer and ends up being spit out by the printer, looking the same as well.
0: And that technology is PostScript. What can we say about PostScript? I, I'm I'm going to take a pretty bold stance here on PostScript, given what we know about computing. Like, it might be the most important personal computing technology that we have for displaying and storing data. It was developed in the early '80s, and it was basically a programming language. So, yes, it's described as a page description language, a dynamically typed concatenative pro- programming language created at Adobe Systems by John Warnock and a bunch of other people in the early 80s, before the Mac. This was the way that people were expecting that computers were going to augment their typesetting abilities, is that they were going to take some text, uh, maybe some image assets as well, and they were going to do like the equivalent of Know, writing an HTML page by hand. There was going to be coding involved. It was going to be making declarative instructions to both the CPU on the computer for, for display on screen and the processors inside of these laser printers for translation into you know, actual physical bits of toner on paper. And that was how we were going to have this publishing revolution was all these people are going to have to learn how to code. That that was what the WYSIWYG software came along and blew out of the water. They said, well, PostScript, we-, we know how PostScript is defined. We can make a visual tool that just outputs PostScript. The same as in the web boom days, uh, there were packages like, you know, like Dreamweaver that would automatically output HTML and, you know, Today, if you make a site on Squarespace like we have for this very podcast, <laughs> uh, every time that you go in there, you know that some horrendous giant mountain of <laughs> HTML and CSS is being generated every time that you move an element around, but it works, right? Like, And if you look at raw postscript, it looks like a mess, but it can turn out to actually be a beautifully formatted document. And the reason that I said that this is like such an important technology is I feel like today, well, a couple of things that we have today. We have PDF, which we'll talk about more later. And on the Mac, we have Display PostScript, which is underlying the entire Windows server. Everything that is being drawn on screen is reliant on a variant of this technology. And with PDF, I feel like... It's one of those formats where we say, like, what, what can we do to future-proof things? And if you ask pretty much anyone, like, if computers and humans still exist in 100 years, if we haven't wiped ourselves out, what kind of format will you be able to read? And pretty much everyone agrees. Like, If you have a PDF 100 years from now, if you have a computer, you should be able to read a PDF. And that's PostScript. So it has an incredible legacy within and beyond the desktop publishing sphere. Mm-hmm. Of course, getting to this point, though, it had some problems getting the Mac to handle PostScript, which is complex and computationally intensive and requires special code to work properly, which at the time meant special, uh, special inits, special extensions. And the most infamous one of these came with, uh, a very useful PostScript tool, Adobe Type Manager that got all of this fancy font work uh actually going for you but it required this uh it required this system extension which was so notoriously bad and just prone to cause extension conflicts that it actually shipped out of the box after a while with the name tild atm because they needed it to load first on everybody's machine <laughs> Which is not a uh, really great state for your super foundational software to be in. And this is
1: exactly how I remember it. Like, I don't even remember it as Adobe Type Manager. I just remember it as Tilt ATM. And I remember the icon and how it comes up first, everything.
0: And there were certain things that would, for no apparent reason, install Adobe Type Manager for you. Like, obviously, if you were installing some of the core Adobe applications like their desktop publishing applications or like Photoshop or Illustrator, it was going to come along and it was going to be necessary for core pieces of the app functionality. But you would install some random multimedia app Some shareware and it was just like, ah, here I have a copy of the world's crashiest extension. (laughs) And so it was like, it was just known. It had this reputation. You would sit down at someone, someone telling my Mac is crashing all the time. You go right to the extensions folder because that's how you do, uh, when you're being manual conflict catcher and you see, uh, you see tilde ATM at the top and you go, do you use Photoshop or Illustrator or PageMaker or any of those? And they go, what's that? you go delete <laughs> because it was just causing trouble <laughs> and Ed,
1: like you said um now that uh display postscript is the the foundation of window display and, and and what we see on the screen at the operating system level we obviously don't need this anymore and uh we have Steve Jobs to thank for that because i think uh in the era where he left apple which is kind of the the rise and the peak of this desktop publishing era, you know, that's how we get atm in its. Um meanwhile over at next he's like, "No, I think we could just bake postscript into the system." And of course when he comes back and with next and next step and and it's folded into OS10, uh so that's that's how we get to where we are today where we don't need say a kernel extension with a tilde in its file name.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh display postscript had been created in its very earliest form within Adobe prior to the existence of Next but it was an actual collaboration between the two companies to get it really up to the point where it could be the underpinnings of a modern operating system which is you know to a certain extent what what Next was what Next step was uh and continues to be in in macOS today
1: now that we have the kind of protocol underpinnings of desktop publishing out of the way, let's move on to some of the hardware. And we're not going to talk about the original Macintosh here. That's what the entire show is about. Rather, let's talk about the um, Apple first party peripherals that let you output or in some cases input uh, the finished product. And the main place to start here is, of course, Apple's printers. And Ed mentioned dot matrix printers um, there's I, there are actually so many printers that I didn't have any idea Apple made there are printers that predate the Macintosh that are were that were sold to uh, be to print output from the Apple II line of course why not um, but where my familiarity with Apple produced printers comes in is the image writer line this is Apple's dot matrix printer line. Uh, My family had an ImageWriter 2. I believe our school district had ImageWriter 2s before they switched to some kind of modern laser-based printer, whether it was Apple or another brand. Um, But you probably know a dot matrix printer. (laughs) The next time you go into some kind of healthcare professional office, you're probably going to get something on a dot matrix printer.
0: Or the next time you fly on an airplane, they still print out uh, flight manifests on dot matrix printers for reasons unknown. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Apple had a couple
1: image writers. Um, What I would just like to point out, because they weren't entirely instrumental in the rise of desktop publishing, uh, is just the fact that the ImageWriter 2, again, I think the most popular model, the one I'm certainly most familiar with, was announced in September of 1985 and not discontinued until late 1996. Wow. Which is, it's just wild in general for the technology industry but i think particularly wild for a technology that felt outdated you know within years of its introduction so let's move on to the actual laser printers of course um the main benefit i think of of laser printers certainly with regards to our discussion here is the much higher dpi you can it's kind of like Ed, i think you said the the difference between a standard computer display moving into a retina display. You just don't see the pixels anymore.
0: Yeah, or coming from dot matrix, I mean, the the resolution on those was was extremely poor.
1: Apple made a whole line of laser writers. The very first laser writer printer um, was announced in January of 1985. Actually, January 23rd, which was the same day that PageMaker version one was introduced, and we will get to PageMaker in a bit. Um, a couple interesting things about the laser writer, uh, it used postscript. We, we talked about postscript. Obviously that's, that's a key point. Um, if the, if the software on the computer is essentially spitting postscript out to the printer, it has to be able to interpret it. But like Ed, you said, uh, postscript is a dense language. It's, it's a lot of declarative data to interpret, um, so, at the time of its introduction, the LaserWriter had a twelve megahertz Motorola sixty-eight K processor. The Macintosh had an eight megahertz sixty-eight K processor. The printer was actually more powerful because it needed the power to interpret and print PostScript.
0: Right, and if you think about it, just in terms of the total like buffer size of data that's being handled. Uh, And and we've seen this even in in modern times where we, as we've been increasing display sizes and getting them to resolutions that are more like laser printers, getting up to 5K, 6K displays, where we've we've run into the problem of, gee, can we even transmit that much data over like a Thunderbolt bus, which is, of course, orders of magnitude beyond what we were talking about at the time. But just the fact of, you know, even a fraction of a page at the DPI that the laser writer was operating is significantly more dots than there were on a 512 pixel wide Macintosh screen. Yeah. A couple of the other fun facts about the uh, the release, uh, at its release, also <laughs> things statistics that are higher than the uh, Macintosh that it goes with, uh, it cost $6,995 at its release, which is equivalent to over $16,000 today. <laughs> and as for its uh, simultaneous release with PageMaker, not only was it simultaneously released with PageMaker, but also at that same time where they were jointly announcing these products was when Aldis actually coined and started promoting the phrase desktop publishing.
1: A couple more things about the laser writer, as will also become the case in a different printer we'll talk about in a minute. Apple was using, you know, some some other printer manufacturer parts, which makes sense. You know, printers aren't going to be your core competency if you're coming off the run of the Apple Apple II, Apple III, and and moving into the Mac. So, um, the actual engine that transferred toner to paper was a Canon engine. Um, another printer manufacturer that you may have heard of, HP was using the same engine, even though I think HP and Canon are more direct competitors. Um, and another thing that this meant is that uh, for a while, some of these Apple laser printer models and HP laser printer models could use the same toner cartridges. And I don't even want to know, just given how the the, the landscape of um, replacement ink and replacement toner today and a kind of like razor versus the blades model, I don't even want to know what uh you know toner costs in the mid 1980s would translate to today, and it was probably very useful that your cartridges were interoperable, and you could probably buy some nice cheaper third-party options.
0: I have a feeling though that the economic model was actually the other way around, and you're buying a seven thousand dollar printer. Like yes, the the toner is not going to be cheap, but they are not doing the loss leader model there. You are you are more than paying for every component inside of that inside of that box, including the toner.
1: That's a very good point.
0: When you, uh, I was going to say, take it home, more like take it to the office for the first time.
1: And uh, if you go onto maybe like the Wikipedia page for the Laser writer or your website of, of Apple hardware history of choice, um, there are a whole bunch of Laser Rider models. Like this product line, I wouldn't say fragmented, but it was just, it had a whole bunch of different models. And like I was saying to Ed before we started recording, it's very emblematic of the Performa era of Apple Computer Incorporated, where we're gonna have all these different models with, you know, two-letter designations that have each little different things. Like um, some of the later laser writer models were more consumer targeted and actually didn't have PostScript licensing and, and weren't able to interpret Postscript. And so you had to make sure your software was outputting in QuickDraw or an, a, a different protocol. Some uh, eventually got into color. Some were more adapted to networking. So like Ed, you just said, like the office printer versus a printer for your home desktop. Um, I think if I counted correctly, all in all, there were 25 different laser writers during the run of the product line, which is a lot for Apple, which isn't known for being a printer company.
0: Yeah, I think the one big leap that happened later in the laser writer line was the introduction of the color laser writer which was 10 years later and it's interesting the way that that product was placed it was it was introduced at a similarly high price right around $7000 in 1995 and of course at that by that time in that 10 year span the cost of Black and white laser printing had come down dramatically. I mean, you were still looking at probably around a thousand dollars for a really for for a good laser printer in that time, but then they were able to jump back up to that uh mid-thousands tier for again, another truly revolutionary product product that completed that vision of WYSIWYG, right? Mm-hmm. Where not only were you going to have that kind of interaction on your screen, but you are able to actually output the high quality laser copy on hard copy that you really couldn't up to that point.
1: And just to close out uh, Apple as a printer manufacturer, there was the StyleWriter line, which were inkjet printers. This is a much cheaper way to get into uh, home printing, but you sacrifice a lot of that high quality, high DPI output um, also speed.
0: Not that the laser writers were exactly speed kings. Uh, the color laser writer was 12 pages per minute in black and white and three in color, which actually totally makes sense. I think it was probably actually doing multiple passes. So you get your CMYK passes. So it's a, it takes four times as long.
1: Uh, and just like with the laser writer using Canon parts, um, the style writer mostly used Canon inkjet engines, um, although some of the later models were just basically white labeled HP deskjet printers. Um, so at that point, you can tell Apple's like, well, we don't really need to be in the printer game. We're not even going to design the enclosure around other people's parts. We're also going to use their enclosures as well, but maybe make it that like snow white platinum color and slap a six color logo on it.
0: Man, nineties Apple. <laughs>
1: yeah, uh, the Stylewriter line lasted from 1991 when it was just black and white. Um, The last color models were announced in 1997. I would just like to point out again that that is a much shorter lifespan than the dot matrix image writer too. Hmm. (laughs) Apple also made some scanners, uh, some first party scanners. The initial one was just called the Apple scanner.
0: That's like a modern Apple product name. What is it? It's a scanner. What's it called? Apple scanner.
1: The Apple scanner initially could scan at 300 DPI at only 16 levels of gray um, over the SCSI interface that was in August of 1988. They had an intermediate model called the one scanner camel case that bumped it up to 256 levels of gray and finally closed out the line with the color one scanner. Um, And I think there were a couple different models of, of this one that had different color depth. But I, again, this was even less of a priority for Apple than the printing line. Um, there are lots of other manufacturers that make dedicated scanner hardware in that era. And now I guess like if you get a scanner, you're probably just getting one of those multifunction printers that can also fax for whatever reason. And also with desktop publishing, the, the verb in there is publish. So there is less of a focus on getting material, scanned material in as there was being able to create and compose on the computer and getting it out.
0: Right. Especially at those levels of quality, you're going to be reducing what you have to something that is much lesser. Maybe you want to do that just as a proxy so that you could mock it up with all of your beautiful typography and then resort to your actual original analog image files uh, for your actual printing. So yeah, in the scanner world, uh, other companies really outpaced Apple. It was not a priority. There were much better other SCSI scanners on the Windows side. Parallel scanners were outpacing even the SCSI scanners. And so in the late 90s, when Steve Jobs returned to Apple, outwent the scanners, outwent the printers. All of those peripheral hardware lines were discontinued when he returned. They did not fit in the grid of four. But it makes total sense why that happened. Like I said, on the scanner side, there was really better technology to be had elsewhere. On the printer side, laser was becoming much more commodified. The style writer line showed that Apple was not really interested in playing the inkjet printer loss leader Type of game that doesn't fit with how they like to charge really high margins on all of their products. So they did not fit within the business, but that didn't mean that the Mac still couldn't be at the center of a desktop publishing workflow, especially if what you were counting on most closely was the software that you were using.
1: Yeah, so now let's get into the desktop publishing software of the, the heyday of that era. And we have to go back to the one we've already cited a couple times, PageMaker.
0: Oldest PageMaker.
1: <laughs> because when it was first created and first released, it was not an Adobe product. It was an Aldus product. Um, like we said before, it was announced the same day as the first Laser Rider in January 1985 and finally released in July of 1985. Um, so yeah, this is within, you know, a year and change of the Macintosh coming out.
0: And Aldus, of course, was known for other high-end software that also relied on, uh, PostScript and those kind of technologies. They were the original creators of Freehand, which was then later Macromedia Freehand and then was completely pounded into the dust by Illustrator. <laughs> um. But that was another one of their flagship products. These were really flagship products. When PageMaker shipped, it was something like $795. And there were many multi-hundred-dollar add-ons that may be necessary given the particular subtype of publishing that you were in, whether that be uh, brochure creation, large format, magazine, newspaper, D- depending whether you were more focused on type work, color separation, or those kinds of different activities.
1: Obviously it was successful. It it was kind of the the leader from the software side of the desktop publishing wave. Um, and Aldus like kept innovating. Uh, you, you can't rest on your laurels. Um, we mentioned version 1.0, you know, it, it kind of set the standard, but it wasn't actually until version 1.2 a year later <laughs> that, um, It could actually communicate via PostScript with the laser writer. Uh, So, you know, get your feet wet, learn how to use the software. And when you want to start uh, actually publishing, you know, you have to upgrade.
0: Right. And that's one thing that we should mention about how this software operated that is foreign to us now, if if we're still printing things at all from our Macs. You can print anything, right? Like you just assume that anything you have any kind of document. As long as it can fit on a page, it can be printed, right? Right. But this was the key of PostScript, was that PostScript was effectively printer language. And if you were not somehow going to be able to actually generate that, then you're going to have either a very hard or an impossible problem. And I remember this in terms of even later on, even with inkjet printers uh and some of just even the lower end office suites like ClarisWorks, you could create these beautiful charts in the with the spreadsheet features of ClarisWorks. I remember printing out reports for school, and they were vector-based charts. So it was all this PostScript, whatever. And we had a Ninkjet printer. It did not have a CPU in it (laughs) (laughs) that was designed for crunching PostScript. And it would start printing down the page, and the text would go chunk, 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 really fast. And then you get to the chart, and it would just be like, (gasps) hang on a second. (laughs) junk." One line on the printer. 10, 15 seconds would pass. junk. And these charts would sometimes take like 10 minutes to print out. It was incredible because there was not that close connection of PostScript. There was some sort of translation layer that was possible, but it was not native. And so this is what PageMaker from, what did you say, version 1.2? Right, yeah. Onward, offered was that native link up that meant that you weren't going to hit print and just wait forever.
1: And Aldis continued... To crank out major point releases of Pagemaker until uh, the Pagemaker application and all of its related assets were acquired by Adobe in 1994 so uh, from version 6 onward it was Adobe Pagemaker and like we alluded to earlier like this that's kind of the the company name and product name tandem that we're used to and uh, I think in hindsight it, it didn't even last that long as that combination because there were uh, competitors. <laughs>
0: Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. Let's start with some early competitors, though. I'm taking these from a Macworld article that we'll link. So these were all out in 1987, and the, uh, the headline on the cover that month was Giant Steps for Desktop Publishing! Um, and they covered a wide range of different products that were available for the Mac in, you know, just three years after its launch. One of them was called Ready, Set, Go, which was already on version three, uh, the pun there being on set, like typeset. Mm. And it's interesting. There are some small, small screenshots in this article, uh, but this was more of like an integrated suite. It had spreadsheet functionality. It was more like a publishing layout software plus a works application. There were a couple of others. One of them was called LetraPage that had been called Mac Publisher and then Mac Publisher 2. The review said that this was basically Mac Publisher 3, but they decided to change the name so they, I don't know, didn't get sued by Apple or something. And this uh, used one of the tenets of desktop publishing that continued on. I mean, it continues to this day in products like Adobe InDesign, where Every piece of content is a linked file. So, in some of these applications, if you had uh, more, if you had a larger graphical asset, that would be saved outside of the file, so you didn't wind up duplicating it and running out of room on your floppy disk. Um, but in LectroPage, it took that to the logical conclusion of even the text files were linked out separately. So, all that the LectroPage documents were were the instructions for the the layout, the typographic modifications to the text, and then all of the data was saved elsewhere. Again, not to duplicate it because even if you have you know, if you're even if you have like 8k of text and you have to store that twice in 1987, that's a that's significant. You might be on a 400k floppy that also needs to have your system on it. Yeah, things get uh things get pretty narrow pretty quick. Uh, There was another piece of software that they reviewed called Ragtime. It looked similar to Ready, Set, Go. I think it had a rather short life. And one called Solo, which is only worth mentioning because it shows how young the, the class of applications was. They said that it was useful and had particular features that might appeal to certain people, but it didn't have WYSIWYG fonts. So in every text block that you had, it actually showed some sort of markup, whether that was their own proprietary markup or direct postscript markup. You didn't actually get to see text in, you know, in Times or whatever, Palatino, whatever font you had chosen, even on your Mac screen, which seems to kind of defeat the purpose, but... It did allow for more fine-grained control, the same way that someone might want to actually hand code their HTML. But it it was in that kind of gray zone in between. Didn't really know what it wanted to be, whether it was a like a declarative layout application or an actual desktop publisher. Another early app that started around that same time, sort of eighty-seven to eighty-nine period. Is an application called FrameMaker, which is now Adobe FrameMaker. Uh, it was originally created by a company called Frame Technology Corp. Uh, and whereas one of the things that kept coming up in these early desktop publishing reviews were things about like limitations on the size of the document. Um, if you remember when we talked about uh about word processors, that that came up in that context too, wasn't it, where like the Very first version of MacWrite, you could only have a nine-page document, and that that was it. (laughs) Um, There were those kind of limits for some of these uh, desktop publishing applications. It's like, uh, 16 pages, that's the max. Well, I wanted to create a a 30-page brochure, or I wanted to typeset an entire book. That was not possible with some of them. So FrameMaker was designed more for book publishing. So this is kind of at the fringes of desktop publishing, uh, or you have to apply that word "desktop" kind of carefully. Where it's like the the creation is done on the desktop, but obviously if you're if you're printing a commercial book, then it's going to go off to a printing house that makes books rather than just produces pages that then you can staple together or whatever. So it was designed for that. Uh, it had basically no limit on the length of documents that you could create. And it was more focused on instead of laying out every page individually, that you would create a set of styles for book. And you can imagine this. Think of like, think of like a dummy's book from the nineties where like they had a unified style for how the front page of each chapter looked. And there was a slot for an image there and it was in a certain font and it had a background and then they had sidebars and, Different levels of headings. Those were the kinds of things that you could create in FrameMaker and then apply them to a 300 page book. Uh, and I'm not sure if it was built on that at the time, but I I bet it was. They're based on, uh, SGML style rules. SGML is like a pre, goes way back as far as I know. It's like a precursor to XML. And FrameMaker, interestingly, it was one of these Applications that got slurped up in acquisitions by Adobe still exists. So, uh, and it's you know how all the current like Creative Cloud icon standardized icons for Adobe apps where they have yeah you know, the letters. It's FM. FrameMaker. Maybe at this point we should move on to the other big application that still exists that we haven't yet mentioned,
1: and that is Quark Express. There's a whole conflict, um, <laughs> a war of attrition between Adobe and Quark for desktop publishing and layout applications. Um, but uh, of course, PageMaker got its start in 1985. Quark Express was first released in 1987.
0: And while Quark was getting maybe some small mentions in those early articles, it definitely picked up within the next two years. Um, and Macworld was just constantly, I mean, they were going to the well on desktop publishing. It makes sense. It was an area where there was a lot of turnover and innovation. And also it was like, that's what they were doing. They were making magazines. yeah. Of course, any like sector of software, they were going to be most plugged into what is going on in the desktop publishing world. So to give an ex- some examples of that, um, like going a couple years later, they had a desktop publishing special issue. Where they covered word processors. These are just bullets from the, the cover. Um, service bureaus for sending off your, your jobs, 16 laser printers, uh, the 10 best in its, uh, real Macworld cover. <laughs> but then you get to February of 1992. This shows how much things had changed from 87, where they were reviewing six or seven different, uh, different page layout apps. It's a free for all. The February 1992 cover is titled "Page Wars," which is better: PageMaker versus Quark Express. <laughs> <laughs> That's it; those are your options. And they have this. This cover is great. We'll we'll link to it. They have um, Aldus PageMaker and Quark Express with their logos, their logo type, which is, of course, both of their logos. Aldous is in serif type and Cork is in Sans Serif type but they're both showing off their awesome typographical skills and then the way that they laid out this cover they're on um they're it, it looks like they're on those plastic like drafting tools that you would use for like an architect or uh, or a designer would actually use for laying out triangular elements but i think that it's also because it's called page wars it's supposed to like evoke a star destroyer <laughs> and th- these are it this is the this is the light side and the dark side there are there are only two remaining if you're really serious about this, at least at the business scale by the early nineties and then things progressed even further as um well, the war continued, and Aldous was not winning during that decade. We start with Aldous pagemaker as.
1: You know, Cited in the Wikipedia article, one of the three tentpole legs that props up desktop publishing. And yet, during the 1990s, Quark Express built up a market share of almost 95%. That's unheard of.
0: Yeah, it was at such a point that uh I have a great quote here. By 1998, PageMaker had lost almost the entire professional market to the comparatively feature rich Quark Express 3.3 released in 1992, and 4.0, released in 96, Quark actually stated its intention to buy out Adobe. Quark was the bigger company. They had more cash to throw around. They were going to do a hostile takeover, basically, of Adobe and to divest the combined company of Pagemaker to avoid antitrust issues. So they they were just going to take all of Adobe's other apps and then just like throw out PageMaker and be like, anybody want to buy this? (laughs) Needless to say, it didn't go that way. And there's one key reason that they were not accounting for. Towards the
1: end of that decade, the 1990s and moving into the 2000s, the Mac, the platform of desktop publishing, transitioned from classic to OS X. We've covered this many times from many angles. And Adobe being the large company it was with multiple popular applications uh, was, was in step with the OS 10 transition.
0: Well, because Apple dragged them along in part, right? I mean, there was, there was a lot of coaxing to get them to uh, do things like early carbon and cocoa demos
1: Quark, on the other hand was very late to transition Quark express to OS 10 and effectively lost its gigantic market share advantage to uh, Adobe InDesign. They did eventually come out for OS 10 and I think there's a fun little uh like addendum to that point that I saw online that's like and when the time came to transition to Intel they were much quicker this time.
0: Yeah, it was all too late by then. So one of the things that came out of this back and forth with Cork as as a corporation was that Adobe looked at its portfolio and, and realized that Quark was kind of right in terms of their valuation of uh, the relative worth of PageMaker in 1996. It was not modern enough. It, was, uh, it probably didn't have the cross-platform features that Adobe was trying to look for, uh, you know, not just relying entirely on the Mac or putting all their eggs in one basket. And so it was actually part of what spurred them on to say, we're going to shelve PageMaker as, <laughs> as Quark would have done yeah. and start with an entirely new page layout program, which became InDesign. And then InDesign, I think, was, was a little bit rocky at the start too, but it was native. And the fact that, uh, of course, Adobe was pushing it hard with its other popular Applications, Photoshop, Illustrator, uh, and that uh, you know that has a little bit of a lock-in effect where people want to be able to ensure that compatibility. Oh, I can just drop a raw PSD into InDesign instead of having to go through some workflow. Perfect, uh, and that was part of what led InDesign to take off. Now, to Quark's credit, they still exist. They're still around. And in fact, Quark Express, cross-platform application, is not only still on the Mac, on Intel 64-bit requires 64-bit, which is great. Um, it's in fact available on the Mac App Store, and unfortunately, however, it has 1.3 stars. <laughs> and I think you know part of the reason that maybe they're still around is that they're uh, they're still rolling with the market. They're no longer the market leader, but. Uh, it's a free download, and then they have a, uh, a subscription for actually unlocking the full features of Quark Express. Thirty bucks a month, or three hundred for an annual subscription, right through the Mac App Store. So, uh, if you're a diehard Quark fan, uh, maybe maybe you're still using it. That's
1: basically the landscape of the two giants um, in desktop publishing, especially as it played out on the Mac. That doesn't mean they're all the players. We covered a bunch of those early classic system apps. Um, and there are some other ones, too, that came along the way.
0: Well, and of course, most of us were not using Quark and and PageMaker when they were $800 in the 90s right. and uh, and large programs and not easy to pirate and... Honestly, even if you were able to pirate them, you might not have had much use for them just as an individual. So there was, you know, after the first wave of desktop publishing, there was a consumer desktop publishing wave that came through a few years later. Um, things in around 1990, there was an app called Aldous Personal Press, where they were, in fact, creating sort of a, a feature light version of PageMaker that was more targeted at individual small organizations, it was just $299. (laughs) Another one in a Macworld review that I'll link to was called Publish It Easy, which is even cheaper at $249. And one that only bears mention for its great review here called MaxPage. Page. Uh, That's M-A-X Page, not M-A-C-S Page. Uh, But the Macworld review MinPage would be a better name for this $89 bare-bones program. It can't kern or even justify type. Publications are limited to a single page. The undo command doesn't work, and it has an amateurish feel to it. It does run on a 512k Mac. <laughs> I love that last sentence. Like, well, I guess here's a good thing. <laughs> and yeah, the the perhaps the relative failure of those applications is also in part because... Things like word processors and works applications, lightweight office suites actually were able to get to the point of uh, introducing better page layout tools that were, you know, enough for someone who just wants to put together a nice report for school or, uh, you know, monthly newsletter for, uh, you know, for their local organization You can just open up something like Clarisworks and even some of the things that at first seemed like important page layout tools like linking text boxes. I remember that going back to like Clarisworks 3, Clarisworks 4. Uh, So there was a big trickle down effect of desktop publishing features into more broad productivity apps.
1: And, uh, just a convenient bit of self promotion here. We've done entire episodes on word processors and works apps. If you want to go back into our uh, episode archive, it's 77 and 25.
0: Yeah. So we won't cover those in, uh, in much detail here.
1: One thing, Ed, you, you kind of set up at the beginning of this discussion is during this era, um, you were saving files in proprietary file formats that worked within, you know, the, the respective program. That's kind of what one of the things that leads to there being a war where, you know, you've got to go all in on one or the other. Um, But here in the modern era and and today, there's kind of a couple universal or more universal, at least, file formats. And uh, one of them, like you said, PDF, is kind of designed to be self-contained and future-proof. So the, the landscape of desktop publishing is a little different. It's, it's trying to be, um, applicable to more places at once.
0: Right. And PDF has become the standard for, um, well, WYSIWYG, right? Where yeah. you want to make sure that you're giving someone a file that then when they either display it on screen or, uh, or send it to a printer, whether it's a personal printer or a printing service, you're going to get what you have seen already on your screen. um, there are caveats, of course, you get those weird font things every once in a while, but like there are tools like Acrobat Pro that you know where you go into like the PDF properties where you think, oh, PDF, it's a simple simple file. I download it and I open it in preview. The simple text of our day opens, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> and it's just the simplest thing. And then you go into like PDF properties in Acrobat or a third party app like uh, like PDF pen, and it's just like, Tab after tab after tab of rows of check boxes for basically manipulating that postscript that's that's underneath there. There's so many uh, of these little tweaks that that you can do. Um, there are even on the more like publishing side. Maybe if you're one of those people who uses FrameMaker, for example, and you're looking to do you know publishing house quality books. Um, there are tools like Acrobat Distiller. I don't know if that's still really like in use, but I know um, when my mom was working on getting some books published, and it sent. She was you know actually creating the master files and then sending them off to a printer. Um, she bought that application, which I get it, it introduces this whole other set of these these tweaks that are designed for professional offset printing. The same as. 20 years, 30 years prior, if you were using PageMaker, you might need to buy one of those $300 add-ons to make sure that then when you sent it off, everything was exactly as you wanted. There are a couple other formats that um, are more relevant now. Of course, at at this point, we don't even necessarily want to send things to print. Um, So there are formats like EPUB uh, for books. Um, And I just wanted to mention briefly related to EPUB, Apple's wonderful proprietary format, uh, the iBooks author format, which, um, is, I guess, basically deprecated at this point. Um, but this was, again, this sort of melding of these tools, uh, where Apple wanted people to create rich digital books, um, that then possibly could be, uh, also replicated in print. Um, iBooks Author was that digital tool, had that proprietary format, could also do EPUB, and it was a page layout tool, right? Like, that was what it was, and then as Apple decided to scale back that, they pushed those features down into pages, just the same way as we saw where some of those page layout features got pushed down into word processors, or at least into works programs, this is like, it seems like it's actually a cycle where we, where these specialty design apps are created and then the you know, most consumer appealing features of those get brought down into more consumer products at lower price points, of course, in Apple's case, free for pages.
1: And so that's more or less uh, a brief overview of the importance of the desktop publishing era to the classic Mac. And the Mac ecosystem, obviously, like we said at the outset, the Mac was more or less synonymous with desktop publishing in its heyday before the, the larger Mac first PC wars. So, of course, there's going to be a lot more nuance and and maybe specific products or services or software that we didn't cover here. But it, I think to me, it was really helpful to have that that like triangle laid out in the wikipedia article of like there's the computer on which you do it and that was unquestionably a macintosh there was the software you used which was um at least at first page maker and there was the way that you got the, the physical manifestation of your work which was the laser writer and i guess like we said that the technology tying it all together was postscript so uh at least for me in, in trying to tackle this huge topic being able to distill it down into those distinct parts was really helpful um and so hopefully It has been for you to the listener.
0: And we wanted to finish this episode with a, uh, well, we're really doing it because it's our December episode. And we like to always have something Christmas themed. And Brian suggested this one. Um, It's going to be a little bit interesting uh, because there's like one line in our outline here and (laughs) I'm going to be telling the story. He thought that it might be a good tie-in for desktop publishing though, which is that when I was a kid, actually all the way up through college, Every year, I created my family's Christmas card. And that meant doing the art, uh, the production, and then actually sending out like 200 Christmas cards some years. <laughs> my parents had a very long list of people that they wanted to send to. <laughs> so I did the very first one when I was three years old um, with much guidance and obviously no hand in the production itself. And then as things went on, I got in... More and more involved in it, especially than like bringing in home computer technology. Um, the question here is to what extent will touch desktop publishing? So, Brian, you suggested this. I don't know. What did you think that I was doing that was so desktop publishing like of making these individual cards? <laughs> Truthfully, when, <laughs> when I was thinking
1: about it, it was the layout of the card as a card where I, I don't actually remember if they were uh, a single fold or like when you take a, a letter sized piece of paper and fold it twice to create the kind of card or book sensation. And you would have to have, you know, like a quarter of the the lower right quarter of such a page would be the front face of the card and the upper left quarter would be, the The text on the inside, but it would have to be upside down in the way that it was sent to the printer. So I always thought that if if that's what you were doing, that there was some layout trickery involved with that.
0: There was always layout trickery involved. We never did the quarter fold cards. We thought that those were kind of uh, amateurish. Yeah. <laughs> like that was that was a great thing that some of these personal publishing applications did let you do if you just were like, ah, quick, I need a birthday card. Yeah, right. Like there were specifically apps that would do that and just abstract that away for like, you didn't have to do the page layout. That was like another level down into consumer software. You don't have to think about how this folds, just print it and it will be fine. No, we always did single fold cards if they folded at all. I think there were a couple that were just front and back sort of postcard style. Um, but they were usually single fold cards. And that meant that if we were producing them at home, we could get two on uh letter size card stock. Um, but let me go through sort of the chronology here, and we'll, we'll put a few of these images in the show notes. I am, I'm happy to share them. I'm actually pr- proud of these this kid artwork that I did. <laughs> um, but talking about, in the beginning, how it really was traditional publishing only. So, it was, what, 1988 was the first card that I did. <laughs> It's a three-year-old's drawing. Um, But my dad was very clever to to make it more abstract. He had me do, I I think, about 100 takes (laughs) of um, taking a, a black marker, right? Black. And making diagonal lines, which were going to be the branches of a Christmas tree. And then circles, which were going to be the ornaments on the Christmas tree. So you got these physical masters that were black ink on white paper and he took them to a printing company, and he had them print the lines in green and the circles in red. So it looked like a Christmas tree. Um, and that was the kind of printing that you could do at the time, right? Like, we didn't even have our first Mac then. We had a DOS box upstairs with a, uh, with a dot matrix printer attached to it. That was the kind of technology that we were really relying on. Basically, as soon as I got my hands on a Mac, uh, I did a digital card. Um, it was 1994, so that was the year that we got our Power Mac. And with our Power Mac, we bought a copy of Claris Works. Um, and I went in and made. Uh, well, one of the things that I discovered on the Mac straight away was the possibility of making icons. Yeah, like pixel art. How cool! Um, and I went into a Paint document in Claris Works. This is, you know, not really desktop publishing. <laughs> um, but it is bitmap editing and made uh this card that basically had uh an array of different holiday themed icons on it. There's there's a Santa, some candy canes, present, a drum, some candles, three regular reindeer, two snowmen and a Rudolph, which is just the same as the other reindeer, but it has red nose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, these were created in uh Claris works in paint documents i believe that we laid out the whole thing as a paint document and got whatever jagged text we got um because on the back we always had a little like copyright notice and it was great for the time it was using the technology of the time but it was not it was not publishing quality um, in fact like it's cute, but that's one of my like least proud moments is having this like jaggy pixel art uh on a card well, if I
1: have to uh retcon uh, <laughs> these cards into the context of i guess our larger show, maybe not the desktop publishing episode, certainly the first one you did with the green uh like needles and red ornaments, it looks like it could have been uh like a, a previously undiscovered piece of art from like the Picasso mech
0: series. (laughs) Uh, That's, that's very generous. You're very kind. Um, But I do have, I do have another thing that relates to that, which um, I think was one of my first uses of combining technology uh, between the analog and the digital, which was in 97. Um, This is a, this is a fun design. Uh, I think we were in the same art class where we had this project where you're supposed to draw objects and then the interior of the object mm-hmm. has spells the word of what the object is. Yes. So the Christmas card that year was partridge in a pear tree. So it's the outline of a bird that says partridge. And then the top half of the tree says pear. And the holes in the letters are pears. And then tree. Um and this one, I had to draw it all together to make it work. Then we did get this like you know, offset print in two colors, brown and green, for the bird and the and the branch, the bird and the trunk of the tree, and then the top leaves of the tree. Uh, but I think I did at one point scan this to do the separation and create the two separate masters instead of doing an actual cutout job on my on my artwork. Like for fear of messing it up, right? Yeah. Um, where that going the digital route was safer and actually manipulating that file. And then this is the kind of thing where at that point we had just, you know, just high enough quality of a inkjet printer to do this, but really where a laser printer would have been great, um, to do those color-separated masters that the kind of thing that actual desk desktop publishing houses would have done, you know, someplace that didn't have a color laser writer, um, or wasn't shipping off digital color masters. They were doing color separation and then printing four things and then sending them off to, uh, a printing house. Um, and the last one that I'll mention here and, and link is, um, in 2003, I, uh, I was in college and I took a class on 3d modeling. So I did 3d modeled ornaments. Um, this also did not, uh, did not really touch, a traditional desktop publishing application, but I did have this, um, you know, it was one of these situations of different formats. There was this proprietary format for the 3D modeler, and then um they got exported as TIFFs, which were just giant, right? Like, and there was nothing you could do with them. And so those had to go into Photoshop and be, you know, knocked down to something that could actually be printed. And then, um, my desktop publishing app of choice. They went into ClarisWorks <laughs> <laughs> or AppleWorks at that point uh, to do, um, you know, two cards per cardstock page. ClarisWorks was a versatile tool for that, but it did show me how maybe an actual desktop publishing app would have been superior. I remember that when working with art and doing those layouts, you had to have portions of the document that were upside down, right? So that when you do the fold, fold over, it comes out properly. And there were limitations in Clarisworks. You could take a text box, which was, you know, vector, postscript text, and you could scale it up to any size and it would print out and it look beautiful. But if you rotated it upside down, Clarisworks didn't know how to... Translate that properly. Oh, so it would bitmap it? It would bitmap it at like really garbagey levels. So you either had to do tricks to get all of the text right side up and the images upside down, but if you flipped large images upside down, it would almost always crash. Just run out of memory? <laughs> yeah, I don't know what. Yeah, like, yeah, you want me to take. A pixel from here and put it at the bottom. No, oh, man, that's just too much. Um, so yeah, there were, there were definite limitations where desktop publishing in the, in the truer sense probably would have been better. You know, if you had something like cork and you said link to this image, but no, rotate it 90 degrees. Fine. Or take this text and rotate it 180 degrees or rotate it arbitrary degrees. Fine. Postscript. No problem outputs beautifully whereas something that was just a consumer works application couldn't really do that anyway despite those shortcomings i was still able to make uh 20 christmas cards from age uh 3 to 22 uh and i'll link up a bunch of those in the show notes merry christmas
1: it kind of worked <laughs> it's holiday themed and it was uh desktop publishing adjacent
0: <laughs> and Finally, to round out this episode, an announcement, which uh, also corresponds to part of why we wanted to do this episode. It was one of the last big topics that uh, that we haven't covered, and so the announcement is that our plan is for this to be the penultimate regular episode of Simple Beep. Uh, We passed a milestone with last month's episode, and I don't think we even mentioned it. We just sort of let it quietly go by that. We've been doing this show for five years now, <laughs> which, uh, which is really incredible. Um, and we're so happy that we have a lot of dedicated listeners and people who interact with us on Twitter who are still really excited by all of the classic Mac stuff that we cover and the less and less classic Apple stuff <laughs> that we cover. And I think that was part of what led us to this decision. Uh, We had kind of come up with an unwritten rule about what could qualify as classic enough to be on Simple Beep, and it was that something has to be 10 years old to qualify. Uh, So we're going to go out with a bang, do not worry, uh, because we have a special 10-year anniversary episode planned for January.
1: Yeah, believe it or not, this coming January of the year 2020, Will be the 10th anniversary of the
0: iPad. I don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed so new when we were first starting this project. But yeah, we will have
1: a full retrospective. And I'm sure many other um, podcasts and websites and publications in this sphere will also be doing a similar retrospective. So hopefully we'll have our voices heard among the noise uh, that's going on. But uh, yeah, the fact that a device that is still uh, uh, regularly updated, you know, for looser definitions of regular and uh, what's the Mac mini quote, an important product in our lineup, <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, but it is still very much a, a relevant product. And the fact that it is 10 years old and by our definition, you know, kind of classic <laughs> it's we've, we've done the show long enough that stuff that we were using is now uh, in, in our purview.
0: Right. So you can definitely expect that on January 27th, special day, that's the actual anniversary, is when we'll drop that episode. And I should say, that is our last regularly scheduled episode. We are have no plans to uh, take down the site. In fact, I just re-upped another year of our, of our hosting uh, and plan to keep that up there as long as we possibly can. Uh, you know, this is, we, we have amassed an archive now, and we hope that people view it as a resource, uh, and one that's pretty comprehensive. And so we do want to keep that going. Of course, we'll also, uh, stay active on our Twitter account. In fact, that's, I mean, I don't know how often you're in there, Brian, but that's kind of my primary Twitter account now. Oh. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I, in terms of consumption, Uh, it's one of the things that actually makes me happy going to Twitter is all of the great Apple people that we've curated as our follow list there. Um, whereas I tweet under my, my own name, I read under, under simple beep, uh, and one other account that I have. Uh, so that is definitely going to stay around and will you know, things just come up all the time. You know, we get, we get feedback, uh, articles and links surface, uh, you know, people just find stuff in, in their attics or whatever, and it makes its way to Twitter. And we love being able to share that. So we'll definitely keep up over there as well. And you never know. Um, there may be another episode sometime down the line but you will notice uh you know if you're an overcast user where it estimates the the frequency of episodes it's been monthly for this show for a while and eventually that's going to go inactive but that doesn't mean uh that you should unsubscribe and that that we're gone forever and uh who knows maybe we'll we'll uh cook up some other things for for later on but we did want to be we did want to be transparent about that and uh give people the heads up uh and you know the honest thank you yes uh for how far we've been able to come and not just have uh the show end abruptly.
1: Yeah, I just want to uh ditto all of that uh, thank you if you are listening to this and you are. Uh, thank you. Um whether it's just listening and being someone who who drives value from this content or um like I just said one of the many people who contribute to the content like submitting corrections for follow-up or, um, related links or pointing us to some software that we've discussed, but actually haven't used and, uh, and the opportunity to use it. Um, I, yeah, I just like to reiterate that like, uh, uh, our Twitter account may have amassed a community of people to follow, but there's an equal, if not greater community of people who follow us and, uh, and talk to us all the time. And so I'm sure that there will be enough material to warrant Something, you know, uh, a, a regular episode or a mega follow-up. Who knows? But uh, yeah, I'm sure that even though the the iPad at 10 may be our last regular episode of like the, the main run, uh, I'm sure we're not 100% finished here. So
0: to that end, if you have follow-up, now is the time. Get it in promptly for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you're a regular listener, you know how to do that. Uh, find us on Twitter at Simple underscore Beep. Or if you've got a big, long piece of follow-up, you can send it to us through the form on our website, which is SimpleBeep.com.
1: We're also individually on Twitter. I am at Bisuto, B-S-U-T-O.
0: And I'm at E-Cormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you one more time.